0: Good evening. It's a pleasure to welcome you here to this Monday night sitting group at Spirit Rock. If we haven't met before, my name is Jack Cornfield, and I'm here with my longtime good friend, Frank Ostaseski. Very pleased to share the night with you. Um, how many of you are here for the first time, just to know? Oh, welcome, particularly a pleasure to welcome you here. And if you saw a hand go up near you of someone who's new, when we get to the break, turn and introduce yourself to that person or welcome them. So Monday Night Sitting Group has been ongoing now for 32 years. I keep track because it's the same age as my daughter. Um, And Spirit Rock has grown in this beautiful valley here Um, through a whole community that's committed to the twin principles of wakefulness or inner freedom of heart and of compassion. Mm. Um, And so we got this beautiful land from Nature Conservancy asking to steward and take care of it and gradually the whole uh, community itself has created and built this as as a lovely retreat for people to come and quiet their minds and Tend their hearts, and we have all kinds of trainings and retreats, as you know, day long, week long, month long, um, for families, for um, educators, for um, special kinds of programs, for people in healthcare, and all kinds of things. Frank also has been part of part of some of our our uh, wonderful programs, um, and mostly what we do on Monday night is really quite simple. Um, we sit for. About half an hour, I think, we'll do tonight. Um, with a little bit of instruction, just for those who are new, and or as a reminder. Then take a break, stretch or relax for a little bit. And then come back together for some teachings, which will be both stories and teachings, and some dialogue that we share. Um, all of those. It's so... Um, Spring out there. Mm. It's pretty amazing to walk this land or other parts and and feel with the you know the the wild amount of water that we've had. How everything is just like dancing and mm. bursting open. The grass is saying yes, me too. You know, and ev- everything is insanely green. And um, maybe it's a time for us also to kind of breathe and quiet down and let that spring come in, in inside ourselves. So again, I'm very happy that you're here. Do you want to say hello? Anything?
1: No, just what a delight it is to be here with you, too, you know, and uh, how beautiful it is to have the green. I also, we were commenting on the way up, that here we are in May, almost, and we're still green, you know? Fantastic. So, good that we can have all that liveliness um, as a counterposition to our discussion tonight about death.
0: They go together, don't they? Package deal. That's it. So let's uh, begin with some meditation practice. Find a way to sit in which your body is comfortable and yet also alert. If you're in a chair, let your feet be flat on the floor. Some sense of dignity, sitting upright, but also gracious like the king or queen on the throne, present, easy, on the cushions, however you sit, let your body be at ease. You don't have to get in any kind of weird posture. You're weird enough as you are without adding to it from your spiritual practice. When you've taken your seat halfway between heaven and earth, in this mysterious human form, this human incarnation, You're ready, let your eyes close gently. And just come into the present. Simple mindfulness or loving awareness of what is present here and now. And As you tune into your body, if there's any areas of obvious tightness or tension that you can easily release, do so. Let the eyes and face be soft. Loosen the jaw. You can roll your head in a circle if you like to release your neck and let it find a simple upright. Relax the shoulders. And let the arms and hands rest easily. Feel the weight of your body and how gravity pulls you and the contact with the chair, or the floor, or the cushion. And how the earth can completely support you. You can relax and let go in this seat on the earth. Let your belly be soft and breath natural. Let the heart be soft as well, to receive whatever arises with a spirit of kindness, compassion. Now with this embodied presence, begin to pay attention to the play of experience. What's present in body and heart and mind as you sit quietly, bring in attention to the aliveness of the moment, all that comes and goes. And after just a minute or two, you begin to notice how easily the attention drifts off to commentary and planning and remembering in other places. So to deepen the sense of presence, underneath the waves of thoughts and plans and remembering and sounds and ideas, <coughs> become aware of the wave of the breath. Now under all these things, the body is breathing itself. And feel it wherever you can most easily. It's coolness in the nostrils, swirling, tingling in the back of the throat, or the rise and fall of chest or belly. And if it's helpful, it's hard to feel the breath, just put your hand on your belly and feel the rise and fall in the palm of your hand for this sitting time. And as you rest with each breath coming in and out, let the sensations of breathing invite a quieting and calming of attention. Just here, this breath, breath by breath. And again, after just a minute or two, you notice how the waves of thoughts and sounds, sensations, pull the attention away from the breath. Quite natural. When you can, be with the breath and let these waves rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. But when one of the waves becomes quite strong and pulls you, then let go of attention to breath, and as if to greet it with the same loving awareness, as if with a bow, you can acknowledge it. The feelings, sadness, or excitement, or longing, joy, or the thoughts, oh, planning, remembering, or the sounds. And as you name it gently, feel the energy of this wave move through the body and mind. And then when it subsides you're, you're at ease with it, return back to feel a few more breaths. Rest just here with each breath, or with the strong waves met with a kind attention. Rest in the reality of the present. And remember to keep the heart tender, to touch all that arises with a spirit of compassion. this breath breathing itself (coughs) or this moment's experience arising like a wave sensations, feelings, thoughts and then passing away and you rest in stillness in the midst
2: of it all Whatever is present,
0: relax around it. The breath breathes itself. The sensations, the feelings, thoughts that arise, they come into the space of loving awareness, of mindfulness. Let them come as they come, go as they go. You are the witnessing. kind attention that sees just what's here This breath, this moment's experience, receive with loving awareness. Relax, present, easy and calm with each breath. Well, one little thing to say about meditation especially mindfulness meditation um, <clears throat> you sit, and I talk about relaxing and calming but it's not always that way it's actually kind of wild in there and this one Zen master with whom I trained years ago there were all these ardent students in the 1970s and when are we going to get enlightened we've heard about you know the Zen awakening and all these things and he would say you practice you train and you will soon you will get everything You know and we thought well We'll get all those good things right And after a year or two or three or however long a practice it started to dawn on us that when he said You practice sincerely you are present you will get everything <laughs> And that's really what you get when you sit you get the unfinished business of the heart and the tears that want to come you get the achiness of the body you also get to hold it with compassion and tenderness you get joy, the spring, you know but also the death of people that you love all that Mm -hmm. comes and you become the as you sit halfway between heaven and earth you become the Buddha that you are Um, allowing all this to be received with a great heart of compassion and understanding. Mm -hmm. So, just to be clear about this, (laughs) in case you had some ideas about what was going to happen. So, we're about to take a break in just a minute, um, for 10-15 minutes to stretch or relax. Um, A couple of announcements to make. There are hearing assist devices back there, if someone would like them. There's a bookstore for mindful shopping, should someone wish to do so, and cookies from the family program for sale. Um, Frank has an event coming up um, on the 7th of May together with Rachel Remen, another extraordinary teacher and wonderful friend called What Death Teaches Us About Life. So that's out there. There are flyers for that, and they're quite fantastic. Tonight we're also live streaming this for people who didn't, who wanted to do it in their pajamas, basically, and stay home, and the live stream is also on upstairs in the West Hall. Chairs are set up if anyone wants to watch it on a screen and stretch out a little more. That's available. And the last announcement is that on Saturday, um, coming up the 29th at Lake Merritt in Oakland. The coalition of Bay Area Buddhist groups are having a sit-in and a stand-in for climate and justice. Um, and a lot of the Spirit Rock teachers, Wes and James Barras, Donald, Mark will all be there. They won't be speaking because everybody's going to be silent. Um, but there'll be, there will be a great gathering of people sitting and also then afterward networking for climate justice. So those are announcements. Um, take a little bit of a break. It's great that there's a little baby
3: here. Mm-hmm. It's very very little. little. How
0: old? Three, Three weeks. weeks. This is a Dharma baby, getting the first, you know, first taste in the temple. Well, welcome, welcome, mm-hmm. how nice. So please take a break for a bit. Um, and my new book, and maybe Frank's are out there for anyone who's interested.
1: test test test
3: ah mm-hmm.
0: let's just sit quiet for 1 minute to let the um, cocktail party settle down just a little bit here you don't even have to close your eyes talked about each of us speaking for 10-15 minutes or something and then see where it goes some kind of dialogue storytelling disagreements if we're lucky whatever Um, and it's also true that uh, just about now we each have new books that have come out Frank's five invitations and Jack's no time like the present
1: this one's really good
0: have you read it? I read excerpts. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's what they say, You leaf through it. There's good stuff you missed in there. Yeah. Anyway... Um, i am going to get
1: myself a copy of that, yeah.
0: And it turns out, when I, when I look at them, it's not that we're going to do book reading, we're going to do some teaching, but one of the things that strikes me in looking at both these books, and I love your book by the way, I think it's really quite a magnificent mm. book. Thank you. Congratulations, it's very mm. cool. Um, is that there is a very similar message in both books. Mm. Frank can talk about his own with the subtitle, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully and what does it mean to live a full life. Mm. And um, No Time Like the Present, the subtitle is Finding Freedom, Joy, Love Right Where You Are. Um, And I started by... um, talking about how we can have a vision and, and an understandable one of spiritual life as a, as a development. Um, and you learn different practices and trainings and you become more present and kinder and more insightful and wiser and so forth. But often in that model, there's something out in the future that if you do it right, you'll get to. And then you'll be a wise or a good or whatever enlightened vision you have of a person. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's always something ahead. Um, and what I say in this book, especially after all these years of teaching, um, is that there's another perspective which is called starting with the fruit. Or uh, starting with the result. Living the fruit. In which you don't have to wait to be free that actually what's also true for us yes these trainings are enormously helpful but in any moment we can be truly present we can be loving we can be free and that that no one can take that from us that's our birthright that is our true nature Mm -hmm. Um, they can put your body in prison but no one can imprison your spirit Mm -hmm. and so there's some kind of commonality in the themes of these Mm -hmm. And, um, yes, there's understanding and insight. We call this insight meditation, as you quiet the mind and open the heart. And you get to experience the unbearable beauty of life. Um, And you also get the ocean of tears. The war, the racism, the problems with the climate, all kinds of things like that. And they can't be separated. The problem is when you open, you get it all, as I said before the break. And that's part of what it means to be a genuine human being, or a wise or a loving human being. Sometimes To, ha- to grow your capacity to be present for this human incarnation in, a, in its mystery, um, in an open-hearted way. Um, And I felt it very strongly in these last weeks because I was back east. I was back east a lot this year um, because my twin brother had been quite sick over the last couple of years with myelofibrosis and leukemia and stem cell transplant and a million transfusions and chemotherapy and so forth. And he died um, a couple weeks ago. And I was back there with him for quite a bit of the time until... The day before he died, where I had to go somewhere else, and it also felt right to leave. We were pretty complete, mm. and he ended up—he was home for the last couple of weeks. But then he was struggling some, so they moved him to the hospital where they could give him IV morphine and sort of help help him. And he was for the last night. He had two daughters, and they. Sat up on either side and held his hand, um, so it was exactly the right thing, and he mm. was ready after all this that he'd gone through, and they were there to hold him. It's very, very touching. Mm. But anyway, I was with him, and he's a kind of a adventurer. He was a member, literally a member of the Explorers Club, the people who go to the South Pole and the North Pole, and you know, the moon and all those things, That's that, those guys, right? I asked him if they would allow inner explorers. He said no. They don't have <laughs> but anyway, so, and he was a scientist. He was a biologist who studied the genomes of the great lakes of the world, like Baikal and Lake Titicaca and the Andes and Lake Malawi and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, but as, we got, as he got closer to death and as we got time to really sit together... It was clear he wasn't that interested in meditation and I wasn't going to voice that on him, spare your friends and family. Um, but I somehow wanted to communicate with him something of what I knew. And it's very, it's kind of, especially... To me it was especially powerful because he is a twin, he's a maternal twin. But it's, there's a kind of closeness. So I was sitting there with him in the last days, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to meditate out loud a little bit so you just kind of know what I'm doing inside. Um, And I didn't quite know what I would experience. But as I sat there, I said, and I'm kind of tuning in as I sit with you, and he he was pretty... Thin and weak, and all the things that happen at the end of a long bout with cancer. I said, The first thing I notice as I tune into my body is that it's cold. And I feel that coldness all the way in the perineum and in my pelvis and genitals, and then it radiates out. And I said, I feel death in my body. And we talked about him dying. And I said, You know, you're coming close to death. But as your twin, I also feel it. Um, and I can feel with it the coldness. I can feel um, contraction, fear, resistance, all those kind of things that that can accompany the body which doesn't really want to die. Um, and so I just kind of began to track that and describe it to him. Mm. I sat for a bit. And I said, but then, my attention gets drawn further up in my body, not where it's so cold and dead, and I I find myself then drawn to the heart. And I looked at him and I said, I feel so much love for you. Mm -hmm. We don't talk in this way in our family. I said, but, you know, here we are. It's about time. Um, (laughs) And... and there was a kind of tenderness in it, and you know if you sat with people who are dying, especially those that are close to you, at some point you get to look in their eyes. Mm. Um, and there's things that you can't even say in words that are so tender, and you feel lost, like, I'm never going to see this person again in this way. Um, so it's both heartbreak, but also this beautiful, deep kind of love or communion. Mm. Um, and I, we just sat and looked at each other and I said, I, this is this is the other part of, the next part of my meditation of attention, is just to see, to see you, see this person i lived my whole life with, yes. and that I'm not going to see in this form again. And, and like tears and presence. And, um, we sat that way for a bit. And I said, and now my attention is opening up, as it does in meditation, and I feel a sense of space and vastness, of just awareness itself, like the sky, Mm. um, which isn't limited to my body, or your body, but it's really what we are. We are awareness. What do you think was born into that body of yours, by the way, in the womb? You know, you think you're only made of, you know, Hamburgers or oatmeal or whatever it is that you grew up on I and mean, you're something more than that The spirit came into this life and it will leave And I said and now I'm experiencing as if I can look at you And see our whole life pass. there. We were in the womb together these little embryos and these then these little babies That got born and there. We were together in the crib. I actually had a dream a couple days or a few days after he died that he was next to me in bed and Mm. it was like being back in the womb or in the crib or something Mm. it was very comforting he said he's okay which i was glad about (laughs) whether it's true or not i don't know but it was a lovely dream (laughs) um Hmm. and i said there's this vastness and i see you and then i see our dance i see the dance of this particular human incarnation that we're given so much time and he said to me you know one of us has to go first so i guess it's me And I looked at him, and I remembered when he was eight years old. And when he was eight years old, I was eight years old. When we were eight years old, (laughs) we were living in Buffalo. And it was a huge, bitter snowstorm, windy cold. And we went out to play, all wrapped up the way you you do in the cold as kids. And I was skinny as a rail, and I was shaking and freezing. And he was much bigger and more robust, and he played football, and he was this adventurer. Um, and he looked at me, and he said, it's not cold. And he took off his hat. He said, it's not cold. He took off his scarf, then he took off his jacket, then he took off his shirt, till so he was stripped na- naked to the waist. And he started dancing around, and he said, you think it's cold? It's not cold. You know. And it was beautiful. It was some kind of... Transmission or teaching about his spirit. So I was sitting there remembering that and seeing all the things that we'd lived through, you know, our children and marriage and um, adventures together. And I said, Well, this is this incarnation. Maybe I'd I say, I'll share a womb with you again anytime, you know. Um, and I said, Let's rest in this, let's rest in the vastness and the mystery of it. Later we talked about what happens when you die, which Frank and I have some disagreements about, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, And what was there in this conversation was both the mystery, the mystery of being alive as a human being, um, the mystery of um, the vastness and of awareness or consciousness itself, because when you're near death, the gates between the worlds open. Mm. You know, you see in some vaster way. Um, a lot of tenderness um, and also a kind of wedding. I hope you can hear this because it's so important to understand mm. in our lives that um, you need to remember your true nature, the undying spirit, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it and your zip code, basically, that you have a physical body, and you have you know, this particular life in incarnation, and you have to tend it. And the, the dance is somehow to hold all those pieces, the, the, the coldness, and the death, and the uh, mm-hmm. a, enormous love, and the, and the vast vision that says, here we are, um, going through human incarnation. How is it going for you? Oh, you're going to be dying soon. Well, I'll be following you. Um, and it was both mysterious and beautiful and tender and tragic, and all those all those things that 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 we know um when things are really um close to the heart um and Of course, the people all around him did what they did some were Easy and attentive, and some were completely freaked out and frightened, and so forth. Um, and that's also the way that it is. You can't people do what they do around death. And I have to say, one of my favorite stories in your book, and I'm actually going to read one story from your hmm. book. copy a story from your book. It's all right. I'll use it in talks later. <laughs> you know, I'm thief, you know, so. Um One of my favorite stories. In your book is um, about Jillian, who brought her mm. mother who had dementia home to live with her. Mm. <laughs> and Jillian, you know, walked into the living room. She had gotten a caregiver for her mother. She was working and publishing whatever she was doing. And there she came home and in the living room found her library, all her beloved books, including sacred Buddhist texts, scattered across the floor and her mother announced I'm tired of all these dusty old books I'm going to give them to my dentist All right, so you get a little sense of the dementia there and Jillian was momentarily trapped by her anger she scolded the attendant how could you let this happen you know all that and the attendant who wasn't caught up in that drama said ma'am today I pack the books up and tomorrow I will unpack them and if this gives a sense of control to a woman who's lost so much, well then, it's okay with me. It doesn't matter so much. I just like being with her. Mm. And there's so much tenderness in that reply. Mm. It's such a beautiful story. Mm. Um, And people will do what they do. And our game is not to try to perfect the world or other people or save them. You'll notice they don't want you to save them, particularly those in your family. Um, Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, it says in Zen. But your family members are not interested in that. (laughs) Um, The game is not really to perfect them or even yourself. It's to perfect your love. It's to be able to show up in some way that's genuine and loving for Mm. this mystery. Mm. And it's so mysterious. It takes six million grains of pollen to seed one peony. No, how does that happen? Mm. And there you were, some tiny little one cell, or maybe two little cells came together, and then poof, a new incarnation. How does that happen? So it's so mysterious and beautiful, and there isn't ideals about the way that it's supposed to be as much as the practice that we do. And I could feel it sitting with my brother, Sitting with a lot of people who've died, you've done that much more than I. Um, what it meant to be able to bring that presence to all those dimensions at the same time. Yeah. So.
1: Well, thank I, I liked how you started out about, uh, you know, all these words that we use, awakening and realization and enlightenment, they all feel very far off, mm. you know? And I liked that you were talking about the emphasis of your book about. Starting from the fruit of practice. I don't even use this word mindfulness so much anymore. When people ask me what my practice is.
0: Because you don't want to pay the royalties? Or yeah. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, mindfulness is the new black, you know. It's suitable for all occasions, it seems. But anyway, what I, I say my practice is intimacy. Mm. You know, really learning to be intimate with myself and, and with the world. And, and what you described with your brother is that. It was a beautiful attunement to yourself, but also to him, and and um, and this intimacy was really expressed so beautifully by you. I thought that was lovely. Um, life and death are intimate; they're a package deal. You can't pull them apart. You know. Um, in Japanese Zen, there's a beautiful expression, shōji, and it's, used, it's, one, it's translated as one word, birth-death, birth-death. Nothing separating the two, except a small hyphen, you know, thin line. And a life that doesn't really include death is only half a life, right? So there's this intimacy that's there, and we're always trying to pull them apart and, and, and compartmentalize them, you know. But I wonder what it would be like if, if instead we you know, invited it in, invited death in to see what it had to offer us. You know, I I say that death is not at the end of a long road, at the end of an illness, but in the marrow of every passing moment. She's the secret teacher, hiding in plain sight. You know, showing us what matters most. I, I think it's a kind of Well, like you were talking about your brother, you know, we have this idea that at the time of our death, we'll do the work then. Mm. And this is, I mean, to imagine that we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity at that time of our life to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. So one of the reasons I wrote the book was that I saw so many people coming to this moment with so much fear and distress and, and, and regret. And so I wanted to encourage us to step into this, uh, step into a relationship with death much earlier on in our lives. Um, just to give you some background, I, I was the co-founder of something called the Zen Hospice Project that we started 30 years ago. And we didn't really know what we were doing. There was just seemed to us that there was this match between people who were cultivating what we could call the listening heart in meditation practice, and people who needed to be heard at least once in their lives. People who are dying, and we didn't have much of a more of a plan than that. Really, that was it. And we worked mostly on the streets, working with folks uh, who lived in Tenderloin hotels, a section of San Francisco. It's, or I changed a lot of diapers on park benches behind City Hall. And um, over the course of the years, I probably sat with a couple of thousand people who died. And um, you know. All kinds of people, people from cultures I didn't understand, speaking languages I didn't know, you know. People with great faith, others who would sworn off religion years ago. Um, There was Nhi Yuen, he was a Vietnamese man, he was scared of ghosts. You know what that's like in Thailand, huh? You remember Ajahn Chah, yeah. And, um, And then his roommate, his name was Isaiah, an African-American man, who was very, very comforted by visits from his dead mother. <laughs> and there they were, sharing a room together. <laughs> there was um, people who had intact families, and good health insurance, and all of that, and there were people who lived on the margins of society, or you know, people who were clear as bells, other people who were, couldn't remember their own name. There was a man I knew who had contracted the HIV virus uh, from a blood transfusion. But the year before, he had disowned his gay son who was diagnosed with HIV. And now they were in twin beds in the same room being cared for by Agnes, the husband's wife and the son's mother. And there was Alex, I remember, who he... He got so confused one night, he climbed out onto his fire escape and froze to death.
3: Hmm.
1: And some of them were really, you know, open and blossomed and discovered a kindness that they'd always wanted their whole lives, you know. And other people turned toward the wall in withdrawal and depression and they never came back again. And all of them were my teachers. Really, they're my teachers. They're, they're the, anything I have of value to offer came from them. In fact, a few years ago I was teaching a retreat uh, for docs and nurses on compassion and in the middle of it I had a heart attack. Yeah. And I went through this surgery and all of that, you remember that? um, But what was interesting was that for the months after the surgery, almost every night I had dreams Mm -hmm. of the people I'd taken care of. And they would come to me in the dreams and sometimes they would just sit with me and other times they'd give me advice or sometimes they'd say thank you. Um, But I I just, it was really a a clear lesson about how the relationship continues even after someone has died. Maybe especially so when it's our twin. Um, A few years ago I was... um, Bill Moyers invited me to come back to New York with a bunch of other people to talk about this film he was making about dying in America. And uh, I wrote this very salient talk, it was really, I felt very proud of it, you know. And I got there and we, I was on this panel with all these silver-tongued devils and uh, they took up all the time and I never got to deliver my talk. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill, who I knew from something else, he said, grabbed me. And he said, uh, he said, could you just talk for a few minutes? Now, on the airplane there, somewhere over Kansas, I just tried to write down a few key things that I thought were really important. And they were the five invitations. Like, what are the five things that I've learned from people who are dying that have value? And The first was, uh, don't wait. I mean, don't wait to tell someone you love that you love them. The other was, welcome everything, push away nothing. Jack and I were just talking a moment ago about this beautiful James Baldwin documentary that's out, I Am Not Your Negro. It's a beautiful film, see it. In it he says something really extraordinary. He says, not everything that can be faced can be changed. Mm -hmm. But nothing can be changed unless it's faced. So to welcome everything doesn't mean we have to like it all, we just have to be willing to meet it. The third one was, uh, bring your whole self to the experience. You know, uh, we think it's our strength or our expertise that will help others, but often it's, well, I felt for myself, it was the things that I was sometimes most ashamed of, the parts of myself I most wanted to hold in some hidden corner of my life, that in fact became the very thing that allowed me to build an empathetic bridge to the other person's experience. So, I had to bring it all, my my strength and my clarity, but also my fear and my helplessness. And Then I said, find a place of rest in the middle of things. That's the fourth one. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. We think we'll find rest when we go on retreats, or vacation, or when our list gets checked off. But my list never gets checked off. So, I had to find a way of resting right in the middle of what I'm doing, you know? And that's what this practice is all about. Helping us to find a place of rest right here, right now. And then the last one was to cultivate don't know mind. I felt important to put something Zen-like in this list. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my son saying to me, what the hell does that mean, Dad? You know? uh, but to cultivate a don't know mind is to cultivate a mind of wonder, of uh, curiosity, of openness, right? of receptivity, Readiness. You know, it's not to encourage ignorance. Ignorance isn't just not knowing. Ignorance is misperception. You know, I know something, but it's the wrong thing. And I believe it really strongly. So those were the five invitations. But I found uh, that these were my guides for many years in working with folks who were dying. But then I thought, well, they have a relevance for all of us. And living a more, a life of integrity and, and meaning and... Love. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, I feel very grateful that people let me come up close and personal with death. They, they really showed me how to live and by doing that. And I feel very, very grateful to, uh, to all my teachers, 2,000 of them that I had. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a little something we can start out with, but let's, let's visit a little bit and sort of see what else uh, we want to chat about
0: yeah it there are a couple of things um a kind of overarching statement and then and then a then a question in fact w- what you're describing and again there's parallels in what I've mm-hmm. written about being that the place, the place where you end up, as T. S. Eliot says, after all our journey and voyaging, will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Mm. In the Quartets, that the 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 goal is actually to be where we are in this mystery, um, but with uh, open heart and you know clear-eyed in some way. Mm. And what I'm what I'm hearing, um, in a much more universal language, is the is also what's traditionally structured in Buddhist teachings, is the Four Noble Truths, their suffering, and its causes, which is our clinging and our resistance and mm-hmm. our fear, and the possibility of freedom wherever we are, and the path to that being the willingness to be intimate, and present, and mm-hmm. compassionate. Um, or I'm hearing the four dimensions of the awakened heart, of love mm-hmm. and compassion when there's pain, mm-hmm but not ending the story with that, of having joy as well, mm-hmm. and finally equanimity or peace. Um, so those, those kind of fundamental teachings um, are expressed so immediately and in such a universal way, not as Buddhist teachings, because they're not really. No. They're just the way it is in human hmm. life. Um, So that's just the first thing that I want to note somehow, that there's a... And I think it's part of what's happening here in the West, that um, these beautiful teachings and trainings and practices of mindfulness and compassion and empathy and forgiveness and so forth, um, now researched by 5,000 papers and studies and neuroscientists and so forth, and in schools and clinics and businesses, they're getting out there, but not as Buddhist practices. Um, but as trainings that are really our birthright, that are part of our human nature. And your being close to death, in a way, shines that light of um, presence and attention that reveals them so naturally. Yeah. So that's, that's one just comment to make. And then I, I want to ask a question, um, and that is about... Um, not being idealistic and about flunking the course, mm-hmm. basically, because I have. Yeah, I me too. The, you know, and how how's that been for you?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I had a heart attack, and
0: um, then it wasn't somebody else that was near death, right? Oh, you know,
1: I the, the view from the other side of the sheets mm-hmm. is a really different view. Yeah, and um, you know, here I was, you know, Mister Hospice. And, um, and there was a lot of pressure to do this right <laughs> I mean I had people all over the country all over the world saying like oh, I don't know how he's going to do it you know? yeah. So, um, and I used to think I knew something about dying until I had my own heart attack then I realized how little I knew actually and um, I became much more humble and that was a good thing um, it's
0: good for your family, anyway. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a story because you, 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 I just ran into Eugene on the, on the path of Eugene Cash. Some of you know Eugene, he's a dear friend of both of ours. Uh, right after my surgery, I was in the uh, cardiac care unit, you know, uh, intubated. I had a, this long, several hour surgery, triple bypass. And, I'm, and I was thinking about how our practice is, when you were guiding us our practice, you were helping us attend to the body and breath. But also sometimes I think we get too fixed on the body and breath. And uh, it won't always be there for us. Mm-hmm. And so we have to open beyond the body and breath. So anyway, I'm in this uh, cardiac care unit, and um, I'm intubated, I can't speak. So that means I've got, a, I've got hoses coming out of every orifice. And um, Eugene's there with me and my son. And, uh, and into the room comes a respiratory therapist and he says, uh, let's pull out that tube and see if you can breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and so he introduced himself. And I was, I waved like this. No. I could feel, th- they had actually damaged my left lung in the surgery and I could feel my left lung wasn't working. And so I wrote on a piece of uh, paper, I'm scared. Mm. And Eugene, very no-nonsense guy, said, Frank, sense your body. <laughs> so I, I tried to sense my body, but I could only feel up to my knees. And then he said, uh, find your breath, find your breath. But I couldn't. And I couldn't tell the difference between the machine and my own breathing. And then in that moment, I remembered one of my other great teachers, Suzuki Roshi. And uh, the night before Suzuki Roshi was dying, great Zen master you know, who changed the Turned the wheel of dharma in America and changed the whole way the dharma is experienced in America, I think. Anyway, the night before he was dying, he wanted to take a bath, and Okasan, his wife, said no, no, no. But he insisted, and so Otohiro, his son, picked up his father, Suzuki Roshi, the Great Sun Master, and carried him to the tub. And he started to lower him into the warm bath water, and as he did, Suzuki Roshi became terrified.
3: Hmm.
1: He was afraid he would drown. And Otohira said to him, Father, calm yourself. Find your breath. Find your body. Mm. And gradually Suzuki Roshi was able to do that. But in that moment in the cardiac care unit, I thought, if Suzuki Roshi can be scared, I can be scared. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I grabbed Eugene by the shirt. We were like this. I pulled him close to me. And I put my ear right next to his cheek. And somehow he understood that what I needed to do was to follow the rhythm of his breath, Mm. which I did until I could, he lent me his breath until I could find my own again. Yeah. And my son slipped his hand in against my chest, you know, and and it was like a conduit from God, you know, there was so much love. And then, then I could say to the respiratory therapist, okay, okay, now you can take out the tube.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think uh, some, we can have idealized notions about practice and our dying and uh, who we think we're supposed to be. And uh, what I've learned from other folks who are dying and from my own experience is this is all we got. You know, This is who we are. Not just this, as Jack said, not just this sinew and bones, but this is who we are. And we can, this is what we have to rely on. And we can keep discovering greater and greater dimensions of ourselves that become more, increasingly more reliable.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I had um, about six or seven years ago, I was teaching in front of a big group of people.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then I fell over and passed out. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. was unconscious for a pretty long time minute, minute and a half. It was pretty long. And when I came to. There were like eight doctors all peering down at me who would all rushed up. And then I went to get, and, and then get scans and all the kinds of things that they do. Um, and because uh, the next day I had something similar happen. Um, and then I started to get pretty serious tremors. Mm-hmm. And I still have a bit of a tremor, but they were, and numbness and tingling and cold in my body along with all these tremors. And I went to see, after some tests, went to see this doctor um, and I was misdiagnosed and he said well you have this thing sort of like ALS something Um, it's happening pretty quickly because it now had been a couple or a few weeks Um, I went with my daughter to go to this appointment Hmm. and he said so given how rapid this is happening what I suspect will happen is that your body will fall apart over these next few months in the way that it is Um, and um, with it will come Dementia.
3: Mm.
0: Now, I was thinking of a different kind of death. (laughs) And Dementia wasn't on my kind of menu, Mm -hmm. you know. And it scared me also. And I went out and I remember I told my daughter who was waiting for me, and she just started to weep, and she said, Daddy, I want you to be here for my children, and Mm. all the things, you know, for the people that love you the most. Um, Fortunately, it was a misdiagnosis, and it wasn't true. But I too thought, oh, I'd sat in the charnel grounds mm-hmm. in the monastery, chanted over bodies, done all the death meditations, sat with people. You know, I'm chill with death, right? Okay. <laughs> the body doesn't want to die. No. There's something in it organically that's true. It clings to life. Um, and I actually, I had this really interesting experience when I came back from being in the monastery for those years. Um, and I s- disrobed and I started to live a modern life. I was driving down the freeway um, in Massachusetts, and a tractor trailer lost a big piece of its tire um, on the freeway in front of me, and one car crashed into it and another. It was really, and I had to swerve to get around it, and fortunately I wasn't part of that accident, mm. and some people were in terrible ways. Um, and there were two things going on. One part of me, partly because I'd just been in you know, some years of retreat, was extremely spacious and calm. Like, oh, interesting, maybe I'm about to die. wonder what will happen, you know. Just peaceful witness. Mm-hmm. And my body grabbed the steering wheel and <laughs> yanked it this way and said, you know, not mm-hmm. today, baby. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> and both of those yeah. were happening at the same time. Yeah. You know, I talked to Ramdas about it. He said, Oh, I flunked the course a lot of times. He said, But now you know. But this is part of the reality of being human, that our body has a certain life and it needs to be respected. Our you know, our heart and our love has a certain life that needs to be respected and and then with that, as you sit and quiet the mind, open the heart, there's also a sense of something bigger and more mysterious that is who you really are, that you're part right. of this vastness. Yeah. Um, and um, as Alice Walker writes, I love this passage, she says, um, she wrote, of said, um, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it come to me, came to me, um, uh, being a part of everything. And I knew that if I, if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. Mm-hmm. And I laugh and I cried and I run all around the house because when it happens, you just can't miss it. Mm. And there's something in us that knows that this is true, whether it's walking in the high mountains or making love or listening to an extraordinary piece of music or sitting at the bedside of someone dying or someone being born, which is equally wild, Mm. you know, out of your body or someone else's body. Oh, here's a new person. Okay. that we touch something, those gates open, and we realize that it's not just our to-do list or you know, the roles that we carry. and And that somehow we all know this very, yeah. very deeply. And part of the grace of the work that you and I both get to do in hospice work, and in this work of people's practice of opening with intimacy, is to invite that presence yeah. in whatever way we can. And know that it's that it's not um, it's not an ideal, it's it's the full, yeah. The full no, I deep. mean,
1: when I'm dying, mm-hmm. I want somebody next to me who knows what the hell they're doing, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I want I want good pain management. I want symptom control. I do not want somebody coming yes. just chanting over me. I want, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But that won't be enough. But you also
0: want someone to breathe in your ear.
1: Right. Well, I was going to say, so that won't be enough. So the other thing I want is I want somebody who's comfortable in a territory of meaning, who can help me figure out what the purpose and value of this life has been. You know, what, you know I, I want to explore that with somebody. I need somebody who's comfortable in that territory. But there's a juncture in the dying process where that's not important anymore. Meaning falls away. And, you know, we're still talking to grandma about her favorite piece of music and how she used to like to ride the roller coaster at Coney Island. And grandma's someplace else now. Yeah. And grandma's entering into this territory of mystery that you're speaking of. And this is the land of unanswerable questions. And I think in this land, we have to. This is where we're all adventurers, you know, like your brother, and, 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 and where we bear witness more than anything else, more than provide any kind of answers.
0: So, oh, I told him what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and you don't do that, huh? I, I, I'm more interested in what they think is going to happen. Right. Well, he said he was going to become dirt. He's a scientist. That's what happened. I, I had the guy... <laughs> so I how do the, you respond to that? We, well, I had the guy who was the head of the California
1: Atheist Association. Oh, okay. <laughs> Come to die with us at Zen Hospice. I was very proud that he felt we weren't going to push any dogma on him. And I asked him, I said, so I asked everybody, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And everybody's got a story. We all have a story. Yeah. And the, that story is shaping the way in which we die, and I think also the way in which we live our lives. So this guy, I said, so what's going to happen after you die, you know? He said, nothing. And I said, well, you know, like what kind of nothing? Like will you have ears? Will you you smell things? No, you don't have no ears, you know? And I said, well, you know, is it like a dial tone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He said, no, 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 no. He said, you're molecules, and you mix with all the other molecules in the universe. I said, oh, that kind of That's thing. That's kind of beautiful. But then there was another guy. We had this guy, Jackie. He was a 30-year heroin user, African-American guy. I loved him dearly. And, and I said, Jackie, and, you know, he was at Zen Hospice, right? And This guy's coming off the streets. And I said, so, Jackie, here you are at this Buddhist hospice. I said, do you think you're going to get born again? And he said, yep. <laughs> and I said, well, what are you going to come back as? He said, Jackie. <laughs> and I said, well... Why do you want to be Jackie? You know, he could be something else. He could be a king or a queen. I said, you know, in some cultures you could come back as a cow. That's mm-hmm. very sacred, you know. And, and he said, I'm not coming back as no goddamn cow. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm coming back as Jackie. I said, how come? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. Mm. And now we're having a different conversation. So if I said to him, this is what's going to happen, yeah. we wouldn't have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, I mean, I got my own views and beliefs, but... You do? do. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but I don't hold on to them too tightly, you know. There was a woman, this wonderful Christian scientist, 90 years old, ready for dying. I mean, she just said to me, I just want to put my head down in the lap of Jesus. Mm. And then her granddaughter came to visit her, and she said, Grandma, I read a book. I was at this spiritual center, this place in Woodacre. I got this book... (laughs) And uh, she said, you don't have to worry because when you die, everybody who's died before you will be there to meet you. And grandma became terrified.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the ex-husband, and exactly. the, you know, the, no, the, that, the, the, that, the abusive grandfather. It was, exactly, it was, it was her
1: husband, Edgar, yeah. who had been beating her most of her life. And he had died five years before. And the idea of spending eternity with Edgar was not very appealing. <laughs> so what I'm, I'm just... You I'm, can't divorce your ex. Huh? It's, it's too hard. So I'm just, I'm just saying that um, I don't impose my idea. Um, I explore with people. I inquire with them and see what, what it is that their story is. And then we see whether or not that's a helpful story or not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. And... And... Um, on occasion, I tell people what's going <laughs> 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 to happen. I kind of do too. And I did with my brother, but I, you know, I said, you're a scientist, right? Scientists do experiments. They yeah. They have a hypothesis, they are open-minded, and they learn from it. So you think you're just going to turn into dirt. Mm. And I said, it might be so. I said, but it's also possible, based on here's some of the Potential data for you to consider. Um, first of all, um, the majority of both people around the world and cultures understand that you're not limited to your body, and that's a belief across cultures. Mm-hmm. I said um, my own experience. I've had out-of-the-body experiences in meditation and learned to do that. Um, I've sat with people who are dying and they're close to dying and they go out of their body and they see light or they become light and they come back and they describe it. There's all the near-death literature. Um, I've led all kinds of um, past life regressions. And I've done it in, in Asia and in Europe and so forth. And people who believe or don't believe, it doesn't matter if you have a group of 30 or 40 people and you do this past life regression, um, half of them are more remember some past life. And it's not like Cleopatra, it's more like being a foot, sh- foot soldier you know, in, the, in Crimea or being a you know, a farmer in somewhere in South America sometime long ago in Peru or something. Um, But the people who have those experiences are not necessarily the ones that believe in them. Mm -hmm. And then, if I progress them forward to what was it like to die in that life, and they feel themselves, they feel the pain of the dying and the loss, and then they feel themselves liberated and free, and there's these states in between. I said, So, um, you know, and I went on with other things, and I said, So, I don't know, you have to be open minded, but it's possible that as you die, that you 'll find yourself leaving your body, mm. that you might experience light and, and he was also an amateur egyptologist, so I decided to read him from the Egyptian Book of the right. Dead, because yeah. that was his language he didn 't want the Tibetans, but okay there 's mott there 's the you know the feather from mott, and there 's the scale, and your soul will be you know judged in this way and I read it, and I said, whether you take it literally or metaphorically there 's some way in which there's a kind of okay, I've died, wow, what was that one about? Or some, some sense of life review that happens, and people describe, and so forth. And so I just sort of went over that territory with him, not expecting him to believe it, particularly. But I did say, if it happens, remember, I told you so. LAUGHTER <laughs> You know, we're twins. Oh what can boy, we do? <laughs> brothers, right?
1: <laughs> Who's going to be there at the time of your I dying to say, "I is. told you so"?
0: Yeah. I told you so. I
1: mean, I, I just—you um, know—I don't know. And, and my father used to say, it "Can't be too bad." No, no one's come back to complain. But uh, he, he didn't know about the Buddhists at that point. But the—I um, don't know. Um,
0: yeah, that's Chogyam Trumpa said. What's somebody asked him what was going to be reborn, Chogyam Trumpa and he said, "Mostly your bad habits." So know, a, <laughs> it's not a pretty picture from him. Anyway, um, that said, you know,
1: um, we we were talking about that Bly's translation of Kabir's poems. What's found now is found then, and that's what interests me: is how do we take this whole exploration, and even the things you were just talking about, and bring them into our, the, this very life, this, this moment of our life. You know, how can we use that to inform how we lead our lives now? You know, The two questions people inevitably form in one way or another when they're dying is, am I loved? You know, Did I love well? Those are the two big questions in one fashion or another that they're asked. And, and why should we wait until the time of our death you know, to answer that question? And, and do we need to wait until we die to rest in peace? or can we find it now? this is what interests me you know? and I, if, if, if what Trungpa was saying is that habit is what's reborn then let's cultivate habits that, that bring us to our wholeness mm. and, and uh, happiness and, mm. and the four flavors of love that you spoke of earlier
0: yeah, yeah I think of the phrase the habits of the heart yeah. and somebody asked my teacher Ajahn Chah what is the dharma? Because dharma is this sort of multi-meaning word in Sanskrit that means teachings and truth and, mm. and, and so forth. And he said "The dharma is the heart. Yeah, This is the way that you live in the world. And,
1: and, 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 that it, and that we don't live in isolation in this. I mean, that's the thing that I, I used to find that was remarkable. For most people, whether they had any religious practice or not in their life, if you ask somebody what's most important to you, inevitably... They would often say their relationships, in one fashion or another. It could be their relationship with nature. It could be the relationship with their family. We don't do this life alone, you know, and we can't do it alone. Um, we have a mutual friend, Bernie Glassman, great Zen teacher, and and he was talking in um, Germany about Avalokiteshvara. You know, this Tibetan form of Buddha. You know, this deity that you you see her depicted sometimes as having a thousand arms. Yeah, a thousand arms. And in each hand, there's usually a, some depictions. It's an ear to hear the cries of the world. yeah, And a thousand arms to respond. And, and, um, and Bernie was talking about this in Germany. And this man raised his hand. He said, it's a very nice metaphor. It's beautiful, but I have only two arms. And, and Bernie said, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. And the man said, no, I'm quite sure I have just two arms. And Bernie said, I don't think so. I don't think so. And then he had everybody in the room raise both their arms. Go ahead, do it. Just go ahead. Now look around. Really turn your heads and look around. This is Avalokiteshvara. This is our life we can't do this alone it's a ludicrous idea to think that we die alone that we practice alone that this sitting practice that we do is just for our own benefit you know we're always wrapped up tangled up in everything else you know and that's that's what that often is what shows itself in the time of dying ordinary people people like you and I who many people have no spiritual practice regularly find themselves as you're describing to your brother feeling a kind of expansiveness, becoming something more than the small, separate self they had taken themselves to be. And that—that that to really trust that in the dying process, particularly the process that comes with long-term illness, there is a, it's conducive to this. It's helpful to this. And it's a process of stripping away. That the ways in which we've defined ourselves are either stripped away by illness or gracefully given up, but they all go. They all go. And then we find, often, something much more fundamental, much more reliable than all of our constructions.
0: When I write in this new book about the different dimensions of freedom, Mm. and I talk about the freedom to love, the freedom to forgive, the freedom to start over, Mm. the freedom to be yourself, Mm. and also the freedom beyond yourself, all the different dimensions of freedom... um, it's also true, as, as you're saying, that, um, and as Martin Luther King would say, that my freedom is bound up in your freedom. Right. Right? That um, we can't separate them. Mm-hmm. And I think about a retreat, a men's retreat I led here with Robert Hall, one of my mm. beloved mm. You know, friends and Dharma teachers. Um, and in the circle one night we were sharing stories and there was a fellow on the retreat um, who had a radio show in Los Angeles um, on Sunday nights, and it was a blues radio show. Um, I don't know, maybe KPFK or one of those stations. And um, he said he had a big following of people who were in prison. Mm. Lots of incarcerated people like to listen to that show. And one day he got a a letter from somebody who was, you know, a lifer, a long-term in prison, um, saying would he play some early blues masters like Blind Lemon Jefferson and Mm -hmm. Muddy Waters and Mississippi John Hurt and some Mm -hmm. of the classics. Mm -hmm. Um, And the letter was signed, um, you know, John Huntsman or whatever his name was. Mm -hmm. So... A couple Sundays later, he said, "Um, I received a letter from this gentleman, John Huntsman, who's obviously an aficionado of the blues and knows who the great masters are, John Huntsman. And um, I'm pleased to be able to play these next pieces for you. Um, Next songs. Hmm. And then a couple weeks later, he said he got a letter from John Huntsman. That said, um, he was so grateful for the show, and he said, That's the first time in my life I can remember hearing my name said with respect. Mm -hmm. And so there's something, I've seen it in working with gang kids, you know, and I know you know it at the bedside. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take forever, Mm -hmm. it takes a moment to see somebody with the eyes of love and with that vastness and to see the, see the, Dignity and inviolable spirit that was born in them to see something, you know, with that kind of respect, to see the Buddha nature really in each person. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of intimacy Mm -hmm. can change everything, even in a moment. Hmm.
1: There was a guy who came to the hospice on compassionate release from prison. And he had stabbed his sister 17 times. He was in prison for manslaughter. I didn't tell our volunteers this, but he came to stay with us. And uh, he wouldn't let anybody help him. just wouldn't. But we just treated him with kindness. And one day we were in the backyard smoking cigarettes, and he said, uh, I let the girls help me today. The girls were the nurses. And I said, well, what would you let them do? I let them get me in the shower. Not just put him in the shower, and then he got undressed in the shower. And then gradually, over time, just by treating him with kindness, just by holding up a mirror to his, his basic human goodness, he started to soften, really soften. And then <laughs> he did a funny thing. I, I worked at Gen, Zen Hospice for 20 years. The only one who ever threw me a birthday party was this guy. Hmm. he threw me a surprise party and he saved his social security check he, he actually he wanted to get a stripper to jump out of a cake <laughs> <laughs> and? <laughs> the nurses persuaded him that just a regular cake would be okay <laughs> <laughs> but anyway he, 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 he did this all himself he did it all himself and, and I walked into the room and there he was with the volunteers and, and he was so happy that he could give something yeah. now this man You know, he'd been in institutions all his life. He'd been in juvie. He'd been through prisons. He'd been in, or he started out in orphanages. And, but he discovered in himself this basic human kindness that he couldn't show before in his life. Had he shown it, you know, he might have been hurt or even killed. You know, there was no room for this gentleness to be shown. So, this happens in the dying process. Whatever has been hidden in us, you know, oftentimes comes to the surface. And sometimes it's our ugliness that comes, but sometimes it's our beauty that comes, you know. In his case, it was this beauty, you know. But the thing is to keep seeing the whole human being that's there, you know, even if, as Mother Teresa would say, he's in a distressing disguise, you know. See the whole human being. You know, no matter what they are. I mean, these days we were talking about people with confusion. And, and um, you know, we a lot of our parents... The, the Alzheimer's epidemic is massive. I mean, we are totally unprepared. I mean, 1 in 10 of us at 65 or over are going to have Alzheimer's. 32% of us over 80 are going to have Alzheimer's. And the numbers are growing fast. It's dwarfed the AIDS epidemic. But there's a whole human being there. My Aunt Mimi... She, um, she had Alzheimer's, and I would go to see her, and she couldn't remember who I was. And, and uh, I'd known her all her life, I mean all my life, and, and so she'd never been married. And I said, "Mimi, you never had a beau. You never had a sweetheart." You know she was, I mean, this is a woman who was calling me by different names, throwing her dress over her head and stuff. And, and then I said, "Mimi, didn't you never had a sweetheart?" She sat up in her chair like this, and she folded her arms, and she said, some questions are too personal to ask. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, wow, I really got it. You know, I, I really respected her, because there's a whole human being there. You know, Even if we can't, if they can't speak back to us in a language that we understand, and so we get confused. That's what happens for us. When we're around other people, we get confused. When people, other people are confused. But there's always a whole human being there, and we can always hold a mirror to that, to the wholeness in them. Yeah. And, and if we're companioning someone who's sick or someone in our family who might be dying that's the most important thing It's just to hold a mirror up to, you know, to them, to show them and let their eyes which are the clearest mirrors I've ever looked into show you you <laughs> show you yourself I've never looked into a mirror that's clearer than the eyes of someone who's dying they've shown me all my holding and my you know, resistance and all of it and also they showed me something else. They showed me this kind of what I call undying love. You know, That's there too. But I, I don't have a fixed... I mean, I, I'm not romantic about dying. I'm not. I, you know, it's the hardest work we will ever do. And it's, it's beautiful and it's horrible and as John, Jack said, it's tragic and it's transformative. But most of all, it's ordinary. It's normal. All of us will go through this. You know, nobody gets out alive. You know, so so you know, we're in the soup together. We're in the boat together. When we realize, when we really get it, you know, we don't we don't make dying something that happens later. Later gives us this comfortable distance from it. If we really see, this is actually in the very nature of my being right now then I think we're kinder to each other. I don't think we hold on so tightly to our ideas and or notions of ourself or our beliefs. And when we let go, it engenders this kind of kindness and letting go and, and um, an appreciation of one another. You know, When we know how precarious this life actually is, then we also understand how precious it is. And then we don't want to waste a the moment. Then we want to jump in with both feet, you know, tell the people we love that we love them. You know?
0: You know, when you talk about Alzheimer's, I remember that story in our dear friend Rachel Remen, Mm. who you're about to teach with in her first book about a physician whose father had Alzheimer's severely enough that for at least five or six years, the man was unable to speak at all. You know, (laughs) he gradually lost comprehension, but then he lost his language. Mm. Um... And so there were caregivers, and the dad was there. um, And one morning, he was sitting in his chair, and he fell off, and he was having a heart attack. His heart was, Mm -hmm. you know, tremendous pain. And and being a physician, the son could see that. Mm. Um, And he was about to call 911 emergency. And the father lifted his head. He hadn't spoken for six years. And he said, don't call 911. It's a heart attack. I'm dying. Tell your mother I love you. I love her. And I love you. And that's it. And where those words came from, Mm -hmm. from someone who couldn't speak and whose brain was full of all the, you know, tangles of Alzheimer's, because we're not just this body. We are not.
1: Nor, Nor are we just this. You know, it's interesting with Alzheimer's because. You know, when people have a difficult time articulating their experience, they, we often think that there's nobody home. I mean, we're not so, we're really identified with our brains. We're not so identified with our spleens, you know. If our spleens don't work, it's, it's okay. But if our brain doesn't work, then we think we're not there. And it's just such a small story to live in. Such a small story. We are so much more than that. And it becomes so clear and evident in in the dying process. Ordinary people, regular people who had no spiritual practice in their life regularly discover in themselves the resources, the compassion, the capacity to meet the impossible in extraordinary ways.
0: And this is really... uh, I thank you for what you're saying, sort of winding up. Um, It's both the gift of what you've written and of all your life work at Zen Center Hospice and so forth. And it's also the gift of the practice that we do together, that we share. Mm. Um, whether you use the word mindfulness or not, or use intimacy, mm. as Sandmaster Master Dogen said, to become enlightened is to become intimate yeah. with life. Um, so I want to read you a story in your honor um, as a way to close, unless there's something else you want to add before I do. Um. No, go ahead.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I I was thinking of other things, but, you know, we could do this for days. At some point we have
0: to go home. A Sufi master, known for his open-mindedness, died in the fullness of time and found himself outside the gates of heaven. Mm. There an angel said, Go no further, O mortal, until you have proven your worthiness to enter this paradise. Mm. The master responded, Just a minute. First, can you prove that this is really heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? <laughs> Before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, "Let him in! He's one of us."
1: <laughs> I have more my story. Yeah, yet.
0: you do have something. Okay.
1: Um, in, in, in Zen, in, in, amongst some Zen monks, there's a tradition that on the day of your death you write a poem, a death poem, that tells maybe the essential truth of your life. And um, if you don't die that day, it doesn't count. You have to write a new one. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was, the, I was in the hospice one day writing, uh, reading this book of death poems, and there was with me a woman who had lived on the margins of society, and she asked me about what I was reading, and I told her. and She said, I want to write one of those, and I said okay, good, you should do that. And so she said, but what's the form? I said, don't worry, just, just write it. This is a woman we would have passed by on the street. Anyway, some hours later she called me up to her room. She, you know, she came upstairs, she said, Frank, I've written my death poem and when I die, I want you to pin it to my clothing and I want to be cremated with it. I said, okay, we can do that. And she said, but I want you to learn it by heart. She didn't say memorize it. She said, I want you to learn it by heart. She said, "I want to know that it lives in your soul." I feel so lucky I had these people in my life. Did you want to hear a poem? She said, "Don't just stand there with your hair turning gray. Soon enough, the seas will sink your little island. So while there is still the illusion of time, Set out for some other shore. No sense packing a bag. You won't be able to lift it into your boat. Give away all of your collections. Take only new seeds and an old stick. Send out some prayers on the wind before you sail. Don't be afraid. Someone knows you're coming. An extra fish has been salted. Don't just stand there with your hair turning gray. Soon enough, the seas will sink your little island. So, while there is still the illusion of time, that's a great line. Set out for some other assurance. In other words, practice now. Oh, my packing a bag. You won't be able to lift it into your boat. Nobody who I was dying with ever said, I wished I'd gotten that second Mercedes. She said, take only new seeds and an old stick. You know that image of farmers or gardeners putting a stick in the ground and then a seed, a stick in the ground and a seed? It means it's not a full stop. Then she says, send out some prayers on the wind before you sail. Don't think you can do this by yourself. Get some help. But don't be afraid. In her view, someone knows you're coming. An extra fish Has been salted. That was her death poem. Her name was Sono. And thank you, Sono. I appreciate your honoring me
0: with that poem. Thank you, my friend. Thank Thank you. Well, let's just sit for a minute, kind of let this rest in the heart. Thank you again for coming. Please feel free to come back, walk the land, do a retreat. Anything that nourishes your spirit, quiets your mind, tends your heart, where you are now part of this community just by virtue of being here. And drive politely out there. There's a lot of cars and it's dark and tend each day with love. Thank you. Thank
1: you. I'm going to go out in the back and sign some books for those who want it, but only come in that line if you're not blocking out blocking in someone else's car. Okay, it may take a little while.
0: Doctor Wixler of the Marin Cardiology.